KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Customs and Border Protection supplied munitions and support during San Diego protests. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. DACA recipients react to the Trump administration's new restrictions on the program. So this is a, essentially a dismantling of the DACA program. It's not a complete ending of the program, but it's definitely an attack on it. They're cheaper, faster to build, and tiny. San Diego lawmakers give a thumbs up to tiny houses. And a celebrated naturalist talks about renewing our connection to the wild. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. During protests in San Diego in May and June, we know that law enforcement requested the aid of National Guard troops who were stationed briefly in the county. But what we didn't know was that during those protests over police brutality, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department and other local agencies were requesting crowd control munitions from a federal agency. In response to questions from Senator Kamala Harris, Customs and Border Protection says San Diego asked for less lethal munitions, airborne support, and crowd control, some of which were provided. The Sheriff's Department told KPBS that CBP did provide pepper balls and chemical agents, but says no Border Patrol personnel were used for crowd control. Joining me with more is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. And Max, welcome. Hi. What did the San Diego Sheriff's Department tell you about why it contacted Customs and Border Protection for help? They told me yesterday that they reached out to Customs and Border Protection because they were out of resources during these protests in late May and early June. So they had run out of things like pepper balls and tear gas and were interested in kind of other ways of supplementing their own forces. So if a sheriff's department was dealing with crowd control, the CBP agents could be uh, doing other tasks that would normally be done by the sheriff. So looking over the side of a protest or, or blocking roadways or things like that. And what do they say they received from CBP and how did they use it? 
So the munitions that they requested munitions and the sheriff's the county sheriff's department confirmed that what they received were these pepper balls that were fired at protesters, uh, passerby, myself, reporters. Uh, also, these were fired at as well as uh, chemical agents that CBP provided. Uh, the sheriff's department did say that the chemical agents, which uh, are tear gas, was not up to standards that the sheriff's department would use. So they didn't use it. We've seen Border Patrol agents turn up at protests in Portland and Seattle, reportedly making arrests there. Were the agents here involved in crowd control and arrests of protesters? They were not. Uh, there were no arrests by CBP that either CBP um, announced uh, none of the individuals uh, showed up in federal court uh, and the sheriff's department said that only they were the ones making the arrests. So they were involved in crowd control. Uh, they were at the county administration building during a protest in early June. They were shown on social media posing above a trampled vigil for George Floyd in a social media post that was then arrested. So they weren't doing any actual arrests themselves. They were just um, there to um, basically provide support, block roadways, and show kind of a, a show of strength and support. Now, in the letter that Senator Harris requested from CBP, the agency said that other San Diego law enforcement agencies requested help from that agency during the protests. What have you been able to find out about that? So there were two other agencies in San Diego that CBP said requested aid. That was the San Diego Police Department and the San Diego Harbor Police, the Port of San Diego Harbor Police. The police department said, no, we never requested help from uh, Customs and Border Protection. And that might have been done just by the Sheriff's Department on our behalf, but we never requested and we never worked with them during these protests. The Harbor Police told me that yes, they did put in a request, but the request was basically for agents to come to areas at the airport where they were already stationed to uh, back up in case of any disturbances there. They said they never worked together with the uh, Border Patrol agents and that ultimately they weren't really utilized. Now, there's a relatively new California law, SB 54, which is aimed at removing California law enforcement from much of their cooperation with CBP. Were the requests of San Diego law enforcement during the protests in violation of SB 54? So SB 54 is really looking at specifically how to get local law enforcement out, out of federal immigration enforcement. So it's moving in that direction. What it doesn't really cover is how much federal immigration enforcement and federal law enforcement could be involved in local policing. And I think that's something that people are really interested in looking at moving forward because Border Patrol, specifically in San Diego, has a long history of getting involved through joint task forces and other means uh, in local policing efforts. So SB 54 is super focused on immigration and, and specifically handing somebody over who's been arrested by local police and giving them to federal immigration enforcement for possible deportation. So while this didn't violate the spirit of SB 54, um, in any way, it, it definitely shows kind of a, a blind spot that exists for, for disentangling these two agencies. But doesn't the involvement of Customs and Border Protection in internal American protests, whether here or in Portland, violate or overreach their mission? Yeah, that's definitely a subject of debate. The Department of Homeland Security's own definition, um, Department of Homeland Security of which CBP is a part, uh, its own definition of its rather expansive powers 
and the actual powers that are granted to it uh, by Congress are often in conflict. And, and it takes actual disclosure, lawsuits um, to get anywhere near those two, basically the responsibilities given to them and those that they consider to be their responsibilities to align at all. So DHS has a long history of using this lack of imposed limits to reach further and further into the interior and to expand its reach ever further. And it, it takes a lot of effort to get them to rein in. You gotta remember DHS is a relatively young agency. It doesn't have the institutional memory that maybe the FBI does or the you know larger DOJ. Um, it's still trying to figure out its role and uh, into that kind of gap, it's able to expand its reach ever further. Uh, Tom Wong, a professor at UCSD who I spoke with, has been studying the interactions between local law enforcement and Customs and Border Protection, as well as Immigration and Customs Enforcement for some time. Here's what he had to say. I think this is gray area for what local law enforcement officials here in San Diego and elsewhere in California may or may not be able to do when it comes to reaching out to Customs and Border Protection, uh, for example, when there's a protest. Now, the Portland City Council enacted laws to stop local law enforcement there from interacting with Customs and Border Protection agents at their protests. And now Oregon's governor has announced that CBP and ICE agents deployed for the protests are leaving the state. Could the California state legislature stop Border Patrol in interference in local protests by enacting new laws? Yeah, I think California right now is really emboldened by a decision by the Supreme Court not to hear further Trump administration challenges to its sanctuary laws. This would be SB 54 and a few other laws that help disentangle local law enforcement from federal immigration enforcement. Um, I think this is something that legislators are definitely interested in looking into and, and feel as if they have now the backing of the courts. Um, that being said, you know, especially in a place like San Diego, CBP is such a part of the local law enforcement infrastructure. If you look at the requests that were made to CBP during these protests, the two most law enforcement agencies that made requests were um, Detroit and San Diego. And because those are both, you know, we don't think of Detroit often as a border city, but it most definitely is, um, because these local law enforcement agencies have such a deep relationship to CBP in both areas, it's who they reach out to when they need assistance or have a problem. So disentangling these two groups is going to be a, a really large task moving forward. So state legislators, if they wanna look into that, are gonna to have to draw some really bright lines over what is allowed and what isn't allowed moving forward, especially when it comes to serious First Amendment considerations like protests. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler and Max, thank you. Thank you. Last month, DACA recipients and supporters cheered a Supreme Court ruling that blocked the Trump administration's effort to kill the program. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival system set up under President Barack Obama protects some 640,000 people from deportation and allows them to work legally. But now Donald Trump's acting Secretary of Homeland Security is restricting the program with an eye again toward ending DACA. Joining me is Delsa Garcia, a DACA recipient and San Diego immigration attorney who was a plaintiff in the lawsuits before the Supreme Court. Welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you so much. Well, we spoke with you after the ruling. You were hopeful the program would once again be open to new applicants. What does this move by the administration mean for those who are looking forward to applying for the program? 
Yes, unfortunately, this is yet another attack by the administration against the DACA program and generally speaking against our immigrant community. From day one, this president threatened the DACA program and has attempted to, again, once more dismantle the DACA program, knowing that most Americans support it. Uh, it's devastating uh, as a DACA recipient um, to hear that the administration is continuing efforts to dismantle a program that our livelihoods depend on. So it, what it really means is just yet another attack by this administration with the clear messaging that it doesn't want us here in the U.S. Now, given that renewals will now last just one year instead of two, what kind of barriers does that present for people in this program? For the administration to now come back and ask for us to renew our work permit every year as opposed to every two years, um, it's it's going to be very difficult. We, we already have a difficult uh, time coming up with the $500 to renew our work permit every two years. And now to come up with $500 every year to renew this work permit, it adds an extra layer of difficulty um, a, a, along with everything that we're experiencing right now as a result of the world pandemic and the inability of this administration to address the problems that we're in, uh, seeing on the ground, specifically here on the border and specifically with our immigrant community. It's clear that the numbers have dropped. People that applied for the DACA program years ago are not necessarily all of them applying and, and we know that finances is a big hurdle. Here in San Diego, we have various nonprofit organizations that are helping our, our community, but that's not to say that, that these programs exist across the US. And so DACA recipients, particularly in states that are not immigrant friendly, are gonna have the most difficult time. And didn't a federal judge in Maryland order the administration to admit new DACA applicants? Yes, um, and the administration has done everything to delay complying not only with the Supreme Court order, but also complying with the Maryland orders. Um, that's exactly right. The Maryland uh, courts did dictate to the DHS um, and uh, Immigration Service specifically to start accepting these applications. And instead, uh, USCIS and the DHS went ahead and issued this memo um, stating very clearly that they're not going to be accepting new applications. Um, this is this is a this is a very shameful moment because you know you think that you take a case all the way to the Supreme Court, you win, and that the U.S. government is going to respect that, that the federal administration. Um, receiving this order is going to respect the decision from the Supreme Court, and, and that's, that's not the case. Obviously, our efforts in court are going to continue. Uh, we're going to continue the litigation um, here in California, and the other teams in, in other jurisdictions as well are going to press this issue. But it is a shame that um, the Supreme Court and the court in Maryland have uh, indicated to DHS to follow these instructions and open the applications again and they refuse to do so. So um, that is one of the arguments we, we will be making this um, idea that the DHS is in contempt of these orders. And the Supreme Court's ruling uh, that the administration didn't have the authority to end the program because it didn't have proper legal justification, uh, are you concerned that that leaves the door open for the administration to find a way to entirely rescind the program? 
I think the administration is trying to figure out how to hurt us the most. And for now, I think this this is what this memo is about. This memo is very cruel. And what it's doing is uh, effectively cutting cutting off a, a lot of the programs. It's dismantling DACA in the sense that um, it's as, it's applying burdens for those of us that are already renewing. It's uh, outright denying new applications. It's making nearly impossible for us to travel abroad with advanced parole. Um, so this is a, a, essentially a dismantling of the DACA program. It's not a complete ending of the program, but it's definitely an attack on it. And I think the government is trying to figure out how to end it completely. But because it was unsuccessful in doing so the first time around, I think that this is the best that they're going to do. Like, I think this is their best shot and they couldn't figure out how to get rid of the DACA program, knowing that it has existed successfully for so many years. Um, but I, I think that um, this is not the end of it. I think we're going to take this memo as is through the courts and we're going to win again and they're going to try again especially from those folks that were that had their applications in hand that were ready to apply for this program they're devastated because the message that they're getting again once more is you're not welcomed here now immigration advocates have said daca was never meant to be a permanent solution for young immigrants in the country what is the end goal that's absolutely right. DACA is a compromise. We need permanent protection from deportation. And, and, that, and one way to get there is uh, through the DREAM Act. There is right now a Dream and Promise Act that has passed already on the House and that the Senate, specifically Mitch McConnell, uh, under the direction of Trump, refuses to put on, this, on the Senate floor for a vote. We think it would pass. So that is that's the only that's the only way we're going to truly protect DACA recipients and, and these youth is by uh, allowing a path to citizenship, allowing us to be fully integrated into the country, um, not by forcing us to pay a work permit every year, but by allowing a path to citizenship so that we have a say on who we elect. We definitely do have to make a, a change with the presidency and in the Senate in particular, otherwise we're gonna keep seeing attacks like this one against our immigrant community. Well, it's an election year, we'll see what happens. I've been speaking with DACA recipient and immigration attorney, Dulce Garcia, thanks very much. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. As activists nationwide call for the defunding of police departments, the same reckoning is occurring in schools. At San Diego Unified, students say police have no place on their campuses. But the district's police department has made some progress in recent years. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke to students and experts about whether police can play a role in student well-being. San Diego Unified is one of the few school districts in California with its own police department. Its 41 officer force costs the district about $9 million each year, less than 1% of the district's overall budget. Some schools have as many as four officers at a time patrolling campus. Students say that makes their schools feel like prisons. But the police department has made some progress in how it interacts with students. In the past 12 years, arrest rates at the district have gone down by more than 50%. 
The most dramatic progress has been with Latinx students. In the 2007-2008 school year, about 1.2% of Latinx students were arrested or detained by school police. In 2018-2019, that number dropped to less than half of a percent. In fact, the disparity in arrest and detention rates between Latinx and white students was eliminated by 2015. This may be because the district has invested in alternative methods of school discipline. Since 2012, the National Conflict Resolution Center has trained teachers and principals at San Diego Unified in restorative justice practices designed in part to keep students out of the criminal justice system. The practices that we use uh, uh, with Latinx students um, it's not so much different from any other groups within the schools. Francisco Carbajal is the director of alternative juvenile justice at the center. We've seen uh, cases uh, come from San Diego school police uh, where we have shown that recidivism completely drops when they're uh, being diverted to a community-led opportunity rather than concentrating on traditional punishments. But despite successes with Latinx students, the arrest rate for black students is about 1.1%, three times as high as other groups. The historical mistreatment of people with black and brown skin by police is why Latinx students have joined the fight to defund the police at San Diego Unified. Personally, I don't feel safe with the police presence. Omar Federico Mondragon is one of the students leading the Defund School Police San Diego organization. While the data might show evidence of less discrimination against Latinx students by police, Omar and fellow student advocates say that any investment in police is a disinvestment in student well-being. Those funds go into more, um, more police officers when it could be going to social and economic mobility programs. It can't. It can be going to college readiness programs. You know, we need to do better and we haven't really. The district is not considering eliminating the police department, but there are those working to create a middle ground. The word that ended up coming to mind in that space was de-escalation. Michelle Ferrer oversees the restorative justice program at San Diego Unified. Since she started at the district two years ago, she said she's been inspired by how open the district's police chief has been to restorative justice. And if you talk to Chief Marquez, he's always um, candid and honest about um, the ways in which officers in the past were trained, right? And that there's a shift happening and, he's, and he believes in the framework. Police Chief Michael Marquez wasn't available for an interview, but Police Captain Joe Florentino said the department's approach to policing has changed dramatically since he started 20 years ago. For example, if a student is caught carrying a knife at school, the consequences today are a lot different from what they were before restorative justice. So now, instead of sending that student to court, um, what we'll do is we'll send them to either the National Conflict Resolution Center, uh, we have contracts with, say, San Diego, different um, diversion providers, so that the student can go through a program to realize the dangers of carrying a knife. Florentino said he wants to hear from more students about their concerns about policing. But student activists maintain that the San Diego Unified Police Department needs to be defunded, not reformed. Joining me is KPBS education reporter Joe Hung. And Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, arrests and detentions of Latinx students have gone down dramatically over recent years at San Diego Unified. But what about the arrests and detentions of black students? Have they gone down too? Or have they, as you say, been stuck at that 1.1%? They have kind of been stuck. And in fact, in, in recent years, uh, 
they they've seen kind of an uptick. Um, they were at just under one percent, but in eighteen nineteen they were back up at about one point one percent. So you really haven't seen the same success that you've seen with Latinx or Hispanic students. What are school officials saying about the fact that Black student arrests are three times higher than any other group? So I've spoken with a couple board members and. I don't think, unfortunately, anyone's surprised about sort of the disproportionate impact on Black students. I mean, you see this in both suspension rates and expulsion rates as well. But, you know, I, I was speaking with Richard Barrera, the school board vice president, and, you know, he said this was unacceptable. And this is something that the district is hoping to address in the coming months. Well, what are the most frequent violations that lead to student arrests and detentions? This is really interesting. You know, so back Back in 2007, 2008, 2009, the most common reasons for arrests and detentions were things like loitering or possession of a weapon. But in recent years, you see arrests or I guess more detentions for mental illness sort of skyrocket. And in the past two or three years, that has been sort of the most common reason for a student interacting with a police officer. And This raises a lot of questions, and this is something that I'll be looking into in the coming weeks, so I hope to have more on that for you. Now, one of the students you spoke with says he doesn't feel safe with the school police presence. Why? What did he say makes the police a threat? Yeah, I mean, this was a Latinx student, and I I told him about this sort of positive trend in the data um, that showed that Latinx students were being arrested less each year, but, you know, he said it's not really, that the data doesn't really reflect student experience. He told me that he has sort of these kind of tense encounters with police on campus where he might just be going to the bathroom and the police will stop and, and ask him what he's doing. And it's not so much that police are a threat, but it's more just like students are wondering why they're on campus in the first place. You know, this, this is a place where they're supposed to go to learn, but um a police presence doesn't really cultivate that that sort of welcoming environment. And students leading the fight to defund school police at San Diego Unified, they're saying police funding could be diverted into social and economic mobility programs. But if the police only account for less than 1% of the district's budget, would diverting those funds make a big impact? That's tough to say. I think the students would say that Look, it's, it's less than 1% of the school's budget or the district's budget, but it's still $9 million. And the student's sort of argument is that any investment that you're making in police is really a disinvestment in sort of student well-being. With $9 million, you could pay, you could pay for a significant number of, of school counselors. Okay, so historically, Black and Brown students have been victims of what's been called the school-to-prison pipeline. They they're arrested or expelled from school and then headed into a life of crime. We've been hearing about that for years. Are school officials now working to stop that? Yeah. So at San Diego Unified, especially for the past uh, eight years or so, um, the district has invested in what's called restorative justice programs, where instead of automatically suspending, expelling, or uh, arresting a student, they'll rely more on counseling services to sit down with both the, the student and uh, if there's a if there's a victim and to really talk things out. And 
in one example, you know, if a student brings a weapon to school, it's not really just about arresting that student. It's about asking, why did you bring a weapon to school? And really getting to the to the root of the problem. Now, what argument do school officials make about why the school police are needed in the first place? Yeah, so uh, school shootings come up a lot. I think following 2018 and sort of the high profile uh, school shootings that, that occurred, districts across the country really amped up security on campus and that bringing police onto schools. But the students I, I spoke with, they sort of say, you know, that's not the right approach. What, what students called for, uh, if you recall, in, in 2018 was creating more gun regulation. And they don't really see more police presence on campus as, as a solution to that. Is there any dialogue planned between student activists and the school police? Last week, actually, the school district held uh, what was called an equity workshop. It was sort of a public sort of school board meeting where the school board held, uh, heard from student leaders about their concerns about not just policing, but creating a more diverse uh, sort of workforce at the district, meaning, meaning teachers. You know, a lot of students say that they'll go through school and graduate and not have a teacher who looks like them. And it's it's all, for students, it's all sort of part of the same problem, you know, creating this welcoming environment for them. So that equity workshop was last week, and this is sort of an ongoing conversation that will be um, taking place this school year. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. And Joe, thank you. Thank you. After years of opposition to the concept of tiny houses, the San Diego City Council last week unanimously approved the use of tiny, movable homes on private property. The houses, which range from 100 to 400 square feet, are usually faster and cheaper to set up in backyards than granny flats, and advocates see the small living units as part of the solution to San Diego's housing crisis. The estimated monthly rent for a tiny house would be about $900. Joining me is San Diego City Council member Scott Sherman, and Councilman Sherman, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. And Ellen Stone is here. She's a founding member of the San Diego chapter of the American Tiny House Association. And Ellen, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Councilman Sherman, when did you get interested in tiny homes as a housing option in San Diego? Oh, uh, we probably started in my office uh, two, two and a half years ago once we uh, saw a presentation at a homeless committee uh, about tiny homes and their advantages. And then we started thinking, okay, not only we can use it in the homeless realm, but it also will help in the, in the rental market realm to provide affordable housing for people. So We've been working on it for, for quite a while. Georgette Gomez's office started the ball rolling, and then we picked up the ball and, and ran it through to the, to the finish line. To me, it just makes a whole bunch of sense uh, on how we can at least start dealing with the affordability issue that we have here at the city without taxpayer subsidy and without all the other issues that go with it. This just was a win-win all the way around. And you went to an event that was put on by Ellen that showed you what tiny homes looked like and how and how they they could be an option for San Diego. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There was one up in Del Mar. We went up there and looked at uh, everything that they had to offer, talked to, about the advantages and, and pluses of movable tiny homes. And we'd done a bunch of work at the cities with accessory dwelling units and making it easier to build those here at the city and to get those done and remove the, the regulations. But tiny, movable tiny homes kind of fell through the cracks. So we put together a bunch of regulation, worked with the industry, 
and came up with a proposal that got a unanimous vote. Right. Now, if you could, Councilman, what are some of the differences between tiny houses and granny flats? Granny flats, of course, which homeowners can already add to their property. Right. Um, tiny homes, immovable tiny homes, are, are built on a chassis, basically, and can be rolled into a backyard and hooked up and used as a, as a rental accommodation. Now, we did a bunch of regulations that prevent you from, you know, getting your, your basic RV and putting it out there and calling it a tiny home. Most of the regulations required pitch roofs and certain construction standards that exclude the vast majority of any kind of RV type situation. These are true little homes that are made just to roll in, put in the backyard or side yard and get them set up to where you can rent them out to help with your mortgage. You can put the, the, your, your in-law in there or, or a caretaker who's on the property. You know, there's so many advantages to it. And Ellen, how do these tiny homes compare with granny flats when it comes to speed of being able to put them up and how much they cost? Sure. So the American Tiny House Association is very happy with everything that's been happening in California around accessory dwelling units or granny flats. Um, But we were really excited by this other option that would allow you to move the tiny home in on wheels. So it's getting built off site while you can uh, make the improvements to your land. And uh, that can take, you know, one to three months, depending on where you're getting your tiny home built. And that cost can be between a couple thousand dollars um, for the um, improvements to your property uh, to maybe 10,000 tops. And then the tiny homes themselves range between 65 to 85. If you want a lot of uh, comforts, you can go even higher, but um, that's a big difference from the cost of uh, the granny flats, which can be um, upwards of 100 to 150,000 and take anywhere from 12 to uh, 18 months to complete. So there's definitely a place for them, um, the granny flats, but it's nice to have options for people who perhaps can't afford, you know, a loan for for that much or have the time to put put in. Right. Now, Alan, I understand that you want to live in a tiny home. Can you give us an idea of what the space is like inside one of these very small houses? Well, that's just the thing. It's a magical experience when you go into one because you wouldn't think that something under 400 square feet would be doable especially for a couple like my husband and myself but when you walk in the design is most of them are designed so effectively that the space can be utilized for multi-purposes and you can have either a bed on the same level if someone you know, has mobility issues, or you can have a loft, which I'm very excited about, that can be up high and and you have additional space. So, you know, there's no one size fits all tiny house or movable tiny house. And I think that's part of what I love about them is that you can, you can create them to the, to the needs and the um, interests of the person who wants to live there. And ours will have lots of beautiful windows and you know, a space for my little dog. <laughs> you know, but besides Ellen, Councilman Sherman, who do you think tiny homes will appeal to? Oh, you know, I'm, if, if I look back when I was fresh out of high school and starting in college, you know, and I was looking for a place to rent, you know, I, I couldn't afford a place of my own to rent back in those days. But so I had to rent 
a room from somebody and share it with with roommates and those type of things you know those type of people would be more than comfortable in a tiny home that they could afford you, you look at caregivers that could be in here you look at people who are uh, very low income who would actually have a, a place that they could afford and and put their them and their families there if, if the house that uh, is the right size so i think it appeals to a whole bunch of different people especially those who are just getting into to the market for housing it, it's it's a perfect solution yeah it's the new um entry-level housing market why do you want to live in a house that's so small ellen what are the advantages isn't that such a great question you know it's one of the things that pops up in people's minds right right off the bat when they hear about people's desire to live in a tiny home there's a lot of different reasons one of the things is of course the affordability the other thing is that um, it really helps you be thoughtful and mindful about the things that you have in your life. You know, when you have a limited space, maybe you don't do as much shopping, right? Um, however, I have seen some tiny houses that have hidden spaces for shoe lovers. Um, there are some <laughs> women that just cannot give up uh, their shoe collections and that's fine. Um, but that's one of the things I'm really drawn to. And I think the other part is that concept of really being able to make a house work for me in a way that is affordable um, and not as time consuming as doing a remodel for a house. There are certain things that I really like and would love to have in my home. And um, those things would be really expensive to remodel uh, in a regular sized house. And they're not, they're not as expensive. They're pretty easy to do if you're building a tiny home. Well, I've been speaking with San Diego City Council member Scott Sherman and Ellen Stone, founding member of San Diego Chapter of the American Tiny House Association. I want to thank you both so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. Starting in the 1920s, every generation in America from the greatest generation to generation X has been more isolated than the last. So writes San Diego County-based author Richard Louv in a column this week. Feelings of isolation are amplified, of course, during the COVID-19 pandemic. One solution, writes Louv in the Los Angeles Times, is to bolster our connections with animals. That was the subject of his latest book, Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. I spoke with Louv, who's also co-founder of the Children and Nature Network, in December when his book was published. Here's that interview. 
Well, you spent four years researching and writing this book. I start with your original idea. What did you set out to do here? Well, this is a, a lesson in never write a book based on a feeling. I had a feeling, <laughs> which is I'd done a bunch of books on the what I call nature deficit disorder, last child in the woods and, and all of that. But I was on an island, on Kodiak Island one day with my son, and, and I was walking along a trail and a, and a fox, a big fox, these are the largest foxes in the world or some of the largest, stopped me dead in my tracks. I was glad it was a fox because I should have been looking up. I was counting my money for the tip for my son, who was my guide, because there's a lot of Alaskan brown bears there. And I looked in this fox's eyes. He, he wasn't moving. And I thought, is this guy rabid? Am I in trouble? The whole book is, it's very difficult to explain what people feel when, when they have that kind of encounter and what that is. And I collected hundreds of stories from people who had had similar encounters or relationships with uh, wild animals or domestic animals over time. Well, that there are, as you mentioned, that's a nice segue into my next question. There's a number of transformative encounters between people and wild creatures in the book. Give us a couple of examples that really stand out to you. Well, one of them is Paul Dayton, oceanographer at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, one of the great guys uh, ever. He was on the bottom of the ocean once when he was a student. And he was collecting samples, and he felt something very large come above him and stop. And he looked up, and he saw a big tentacle coming down, then another tentacle. And this was a 12-foot-long uh, uh, wingspan of an octopus, one of the giant octopuses. And it came down and got him. And he couldn't get out of its grip. And without going into all the detail, he kicked off the bottom as best as he could. And they went up and up in the spiral of water. And as they did, the octopus moved around. Paul's body, and he could feel the razor shark beak on his neck as it moved around. I mean, this animal could have killed him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at some point, as they were going up in the water, he says, Paul said, we made a non-aggression pact. Right then, they hit the surface, both of them, and he ripped off his mask because he had re realized at the bottom that he was almost out of oxygen. And he's looking down into the water, under the surface, and here's that octopus still looking at him. And then it turns around and it disappears into the darkness. What does Paul do? This is the best part of the story. What does Paul do? He puts the mask back on and he chases the octopus back down into the into <laughs> You the just darkness. got away with your life. Why yeah. did you do that, yeah. Paul? And he said he doesn't know. He just didn't want that moment to end. Yeah. And you've got a number of, of those kinds of encounters in the book. Yeah. Where yeah, people look an animal in the eye. And these are wild animals. And some of them are deadly animals. You know, you've got, you talk about a, a polar bear who's tracking a, a pair of, of women, experienced, very experienced women, way out on the ice. And yeah. this is a, the deadliest of the bears, of course. It is. They didn't want to shoot it. They had a gun and could have shot it, but they didn't. And they just engaged, and uh, it worked out for them. And it doesn't always work out. I mean, I'm not saying that nature is safe. I never say that. In fact, that's one of its attractions. One of the reasons this, this has an effect on people's physical health, mental health, even cognitive functioning, is because of awe. When we feel awe, it's usually because we've stepped out of our comfort zone, and it often involves danger. This awe, I think, is essential for the development of our children, for our feeling fully alive. Uh, and that's what people describe again and again, even if they were scared. In fact, sometimes, especially if they were scared. Now, you write about a kind of magic that sometimes happens in these encounters that we're talking about. I want to quote your wonderful line here, that whisper of recognition between two beings when time seems to stop. And, and what do you mean by that? How are the, the experience described by the people who've had them, this magic? 
Um, Martin Buber, and I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Uh, Martin <laughs> Buber, the great um, uh, philosopher, uh, wrote a great essay called I Am Thou. And he said that you and I don't really exist. What exists is right here in between us. It's the relationship. He considered that a kind of electricity that some people call God. Whether you're religious or not, many people who are not religious in this book have felt that. So in the book, I call that the habitat of the heart. And I think there are two habitats. There's the physical habitat that many of us work very, very hard, as we should, to protect. And then there's this other habitat, the habitat of the heart. We don't hardly do anything to protect and nurture that in our kids or in ourselves. Here's the deal. If one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. We've got to start paying attention to that because what we're doing now isn't working. The recent studies show that almost a third of songbirds in, the, in North America have disappeared since 1970. You know, what are we doing? What are we, so, so clearly treating animals as data is not working. We have to make this deeper connection. Well, that brings me to the question I have on the uh, climate crisis. Of course, it imperils all living things. You note a World Wildlife Fund report showing wildlife population shrunk by 60% worldwide over the past half century. Alarming die-offs of bees, birds, as you mentioned right. here, constantly making news. You've got a proposal that some, certainly the dwindling number of climate skeptics, would see as radical. Explain how you'd like to see the Earth divided. Uh, well, there's a couple radical ideas. In there. <laughs> that one I think you're referring to is half Earth. Now, uh, uh, E.O. Wilson has written a book about that. He didn't come up with that concept. Basically, in order to preserve the biodiversity, we need, for our survival on this planet, we need to have about half of Earth set aside for, for wild, wildness. That doesn't mean the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. That means that there'll be kind of a checkerboard, hopefully connected with wildlife corridors and all of that, not necessarily excluding people. The Adirondack Park in New York is a great example how people brought back that forest after it had been decimated by logging. They still live there in small hamlets. It's a different kind of distribution of population, and they make their living there. It's not impossible to make your living in a place like that. We need that, but we need a lot more uh, cities. As of 2008, more people in the world live in cities than in the countryside. Huge moment in human history that we don't talk about very much. Right now, uh, wild animals are moving into cities in very large numbers. We're moving into their territory, but they're moving in with us, too. What are we going to do about that? we got a choice. Either we're going to exterminate all those animals coming in, or we're going to love them. We're going to learn to coexist with them. Uh, one of the ideas is to create uh, wildlife uh, watch groups, which are kind of like neighborhood watch, but the, you know the parents and the kids and the and the and the uh, uh, retirees at the corner would watch the animals that are coming in and moving out as climate change changes uh, changes, as well as the domestic animals. They do two things: one is that they would protect people from the aggressive animals, and they would teach their neighbors don't feed the animals, for exa for example. The other thing they would do is learn about those animals and have a relationship with those animals and deepen their lives, deepen their sense of being alive. Well, I've been speaking with Richard Louvre, author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Thanks very much. Well, thanks, Mark. Good seeing you again. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.